0: One of the things that I'm committed to as a preacher and as a pastor is preaching expository sermons, and that means deriving the meaning of my message from out of the text. That's what expository means, as opposed to kind of picking subjects that I want to talk about and then finding the text that kind of matches what I already want to say. I do this first of all because I believe it's the healthiest for the church. I really do. I think just sticking to what the scripture says is the healthiest for us. Um, By preaching through the books of the Bible, we take issues as the Bible kind of gives them to us, right? Um, Expository preaching forces me to preach the whole Bible, even the parts that are totally weird. Like, I actually want to do a series on Samson and some of these weird, I mean, have you read that recently as an adult? Like, there's some weird stuff in there. Anyway, um, preaching through the Bible makes us deal with, with weird texts, with, um, with texts that you might consider boring, like genealogies, and I think together we found that those are pretty cool, and, uh, and it also forces us to preach through the hard texts, the controversial ones. I do that because it helps me avoid preaching the things that I just want to talk about all the time, and let's be honest, what the world really needs and what this church really needs is, is a lot more of what the Bible has to say than what I think I want to say, amen? Amen? So, at Lettered Streets, we, uh, you know, we are engaged in, in current events, in uh, things that are going on, and we do that in our liturgy through the pastoral prayer time. Um, a couple weeks ago, we recognized the shooting in Charleston, and we, we had a time of silence. We named the names of, of those victims, and we prayed over that, but that wasn't in our Bible text that week, and so we stuck to the script as far as what the scriptures were saying, um, And it just so happens that two weeks ago, our text was in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Here's how that reads. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, or homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. In this passage, the Apostle Paul was responding to some specific issues in the Church of Corinth around 55 AD, and it just so happens that when we explored that text together, we saw how clear the prohibition was against greed, which is something that a lot of us struggle with in America here. Uh, We saw how clear the prohibition was against adultery and slandering our neighbor and gluttony and premarital or extramarital sex and same-sex sex. And it just so happened that a year ago when I, or I say it just so happened that we come upon this because a year ago when I was saying, okay, we're going to preach through Corinthians, I had no idea that this sermon would come like right before the Supreme Court decision. So I am not preaching about Supreme Court decisions or gay marriage or any of those things. It just so happened that this is the text that we land on uh, a couple weeks ago. And we concluded that sermon together on June 21st, and we humbly recognize together that every single one of us is broken sexually. We recognized at least three realities after looking at that text and and working through it. First of all, we are all broken, but through faith in Jesus, we have been washed clean. Amen? We are all broken, but through your faith in Jesus, I mean, that's one of the promises of the gospel, you are washed clean, you are made a new person. And we are now waiting... For wholeness because if you're honest about yourself and I'm honest about me I'm not right yet like my sins are forgiven and I I think I'm a better man than I was 10 years ago and a better man than I was five years ago but I have a ask Corey I've got a long way to go to be whole right and so I am washed clean and so are you but we are waiting for wholeness second in our current cultural context there is an unfair emphasis on same-sex relationships that is disproportionate to other sins in the church. Uh, In the evangelical church, for example, it's pretty common, at least for guys, but everybody nowadays, to talk about porn addictions. Um, We can talk about divorce, but somehow same-sex attraction or issues pertaining pertaining to transgender um, things in our community are seen as extra-super-sinful. That's a lie. Kids are not committing suicide because they screwed up and slept with someone before they had marriage. Kids today in churches are committing suicide at a higher rate than other kids because they're wrestling with their sexual identity and they do not feel they have a safe place to talk about it. And I concluded that sermon two weeks ago saying that's got to change. It's got to change starting with us. We've got to be a safe community to have these conversations, and I vow to you that I am a safe person to talk about when and if you're struggling with that, or your kid is struggling with that, and I plead to you for Corey and my sake, we've got three kids, and when they don't want to talk to us about stuff like that, are you going to be a safe community for them to go to? That's where we need to get to together. Which leads us, thirdly, to the reality that while theologically, I believe we need to be obedient to the biblical text in maintaining that sex outside of marriage, adultery, and gay and lesbian sex acts are not God's intent. But we can't simply say, don't do it. That's not a good enough answer. The gospel, if you read the Bible, is not a negative. It doesn't simply say, don't do such and such it's primarily an invitation to something even better it's an invitation to abundant life so what we need to do as a church then and what i want to do today is talk about a positive way forward that is more than just saying black and white no what vision of a whole and healthy life can we support in other words if we're washed in waiting for wholeness how do we wait well and that's what I'd like to talk about. And I think we'd better pray. That's serious. So Lord, have mercy on me, have mercy on us as we try our best to begin, Lord, just begin engaging in this because we read in your word uh, you, have a, you have standards and at the same time you are the God who said, these people are, it's impossible to meet my standards and I'm coming in the flesh to die, to forgive them. Because they know not what they do. And Lord, as your church, we we struggle to walk in that tension of the middle ground of of being called to high standards and being well aware of our insufficiency and our failures and our weakness and frankly our sometimes desire just to do what you don't like. Help us. We come to you humbly, begging you, Lord, uh, for wisdom and for compassion. And that marriage between truth and grace that you yourself, Jesus, embodied so perfectly. Help us. Help us. Amen. So I opened with the statement about how important I take expository preaching and how all of my steps derive from the text. And if you are just joining us today, I have to refer you to that sermon I preached on June 21st. Because on that sermon, it's online now, um, I deal with the text and we dig into a little bit of the Greek language and we talk about what it meant in the original setting and we talked about what it could mean now. And so, but this whole thing, what I'm doing from here on out for the rest of the day is based on that text. It's based on that work we've already done in the text, okay? So this is expository because it's coming from out of 1 Corinthians 9, or 6, 9 through 11. But these are what I hope to be the pastoral implications of that text. Does that make sense? All right. So first, let me say up front, and you can leave after I say this, I don't have any answers for you. I really don't. I really don't have, this is the definitive what we're supposed to do. I have prayed, I have read, I have discussed, I've listened, I've written, I've thought, actually for years, on these issues. And I'm humbled, and at times, I'm bewildered, and I don't have answers. But this I do have, I have suggestions by those in the trenches, meaning same-sex attracted brothers and sisters who are actually trying to figure out what a celibate life looks like that is healthy and whole. Those are the people I've been talking to and reading. Second, allow me to level the playing field. The controversy in the media... And much of the church right now is over same-sex and same-sex activity and same-sex attraction. But let's be clear once again that in this text in 1 Corinthians and all throughout Scripture, Paul sees a vision of healthy human sexuality, whether it's gay or lesbian or straight. He's uh, He's indiscriminate when it comes to that. He wants us all to have healthy sexual relationships. Paul is in line with the biblical boundaries of sex between a man, one man, and one woman in marriage. And that means premarital sex, not just gay and lesbian sex. It means adultery. It means same-sexual activity. They're all included. Not one is worse than the other. In fact, you might make the case, and I'd be strong and advocate of this, that adultery is actually worse than any of those other things. But that's for another topic. We are part, this church, of of the Evangelical Covenant Church denomination, and our denomination has a statement on human sexuality. You can look at it on the ECC website. And what I appreciate about this statement is that it doesn't isolate homosexual sex acts as the king of all sins. It deals with everybody. It calls us to fidelity in marriage between a man and a woman and celibacy in singleness. It is not a sin to be attracted to people sexually, whether you're married or not. The sin is acting upon it either through willing lust, Jesus talks about that, like looking at a person with the intent to undress them or to fantasize sexually. Jesus says that's adultery of the heart. How many of us are guilty of that? You don't have to raise hands. But seriously, these are all the same to Jesus when we, so let's not highlight one over the other. But this lies, for me, the major rub in our culture. We live in a hyper-sexualized culture where sex is seen as a right and a necessity right up there with food, shelter, and water. We live in a culture that sends us mixed messages all the time. On the one hand, we pump out sitcoms and movies and music that basically communicate if you're not having sex on a regular basis, married or not, doesn't matter, you're like less than whole. We, we pump out movies like 40-Year-Old Virgin where this guy, you know, he's not married, he's 40, and his friends think he has a real problem. In fact, it, it is their goal to get this guy a sexual experience, married or not, because it must be so horrible to not have sex. And at the same time, we have these other sitcoms and music and messages uh, where women who are um, expressing themselves sexually outside of marriage, well, all of a sudden, they're, they're easy or they're dirty, So, uh, excuse me, sitcoms and and movies, where are these guys supposed to be having all this sex if if, if the ladies aren't supposed to be doing it, right? I mean, it's these completely mixed messages um, out there. With all the attention on celibacy for same-sex attracted people, I fear that the group that gets overlooked most right in our churches are the straight, non-married believers, our brothers and sisters who are striving to live celibate lives in a world that at every corner entices us into sexual relationships and makes them feel marginalized for not doing it. Now, as the argument goes, at least straight singles have the opportunity to get married someday. And yes, that's true. And as a happily married man, I speak very humbly on this issue you know, preaching is a terrifying activity. Um, I'm called to say things that I think the Bible is saying, but I don't always do. I don't always think. I have hard time with. So I'm, I say this as a married man with three kids, so you know that I've had sex three times at least, okay? So I, I, I just, I'm coming at this like, like this, all right? I mean, I'm not an authority here, but the scriptures are that, that we're preaching through, right? And I happen to know from my pastoral position and the privilege of listening to many of you that marriage is not the magic bullet for sexual fulfillment either. I know that celibate gays and singles are not the only ones not having sex. There are lots of people not having sex. Some are born unable not have to have sex some people become unable through age or any number of circumstances some because of abuse find themselves too wounded to pursue a healthy sexual or romantic relationship some people long to be married but for whatever reason it doesn't happen and there are many married people who for any number of reasons are not sexually fulfilled So we can't just say, well, that's, you know, married people have it easy. That's not true. All that to say that there is life and a lot of it out there that doesn't involve sex, and Jesus is able to make it fulfilling and good. The reality is, and what the gospel would say, I think, is that we're more than the sum of our sexuality or our sexual orientation, so how do we encourage, then, healthy sexual fidelity and marriage and celibacy and singleness and for same-sex attracted brothers and sisters? Again, I cannot avoid the fact, I can't get out of my skin that is 40 years old, white, male, privileged, and married. And so I lean heavily on people I know from the gay and lesbian community, and in particular, same-sex attracted authors and thinkers on this issue. In large part, I will be drawing today on the work of New Testament scholar Wesley Hill, who himself is a gay man who is striving to live a celibate lifestyle in a way that he understands scripture uh, to give him that option. I was moved to tears in May on my planning retreat when I read his book spiritual friendship, and I highly recommend it. It is not a long read. And in his book, Hill traces the history of friendship and shows how relatively recently Western culture has shifted away from intimate same-sex relationships, non-sexual same-sex relationships. You see, one thing I'm finding among uh, reading works from gay, lesbian, uh, and straight scholars alike is that the main issue for people isn't sex. It's sin, of course, but the sin, though, it's the way it plays out in its isolation, its loneliness, intimacy loss that was once shared by two or more people has now been centralized in marriage. Hill cites the work of Niobe Way, a sociologist at New York University. She shows that boys and adolescent males in our culture show high degrees of intimacy, often sleeping together, I mean, in a non-sexual way. You know, you camp out, you're in the same sleeping bag, you're in the same covers, Uh, I used to sleep out in the tree fort when I was like seven years old with a couple of my best buddies, right? And um, boys in our culture frequently talk on the phone. They share their deepest secrets and intimate emotions all in a non-sexualized way. Our culture still provides space for boys to be non-sexually intimate with each other. But a research shows that as boys mature in our culture, that allowance, that space in our culture for an intimate non-sexual relationship goes away. It doesn't exist. It's not normal. And so suddenly boys put up a wall and they develop defensive egos that translate into the idea that men just aren't in touch with their emotions. And no doubt, most guys we deal with, right, shut down. Because when have we got to express that with other people? We're afraid of being stigmatized as being gay. And it's where the expression, we're just friends, comes from. This breaking down of male intimacy is fairly new, and it's fairly unique to Western culture. When I say that, I'm talking about Western Europe, Canada, United States. It is not that way in a place like Sudan and many other African, South American, and Asian places. Again, from Spiritual Friendship, here's a quote. When Sudanese lost boys first arrived in the U.S., they would frequently hold hands with each other as a sign of their friendship. We observed this many times after church. Gradually, they began to hear that here in our country, this would be understood as implying a sexual relationship, and they were incredulous. They were horrified, and they stopped doing it immediately. And their sponsor family started to notice that these boys would no longer touch each other, sit too close to each other, unless they were in completely private situations. It's not just boys either. There's a loss for girls and women because of another phenomena that's fairly recent in the Western world. I like to call it the overburdening of the marriage relationship. Now, I know what I'm about to say is going to be unpopular, partly because our culture has such a high view of marriage and then it's reinforced in the evangelical church and the Catholic church and the Orthodox church. We have such a high, high, like we put marriage on this pedestal. But compared with most of human history and other contemporary cultures, we have placed a burden on marriage, on the shoulders of marriage, that it simply cannot bear. Consider today that it is common to hear that your marriage partner should be your best friend. I hear that all the time. They should be able to meet your sexual needs along with your need for relational intimacy, recreation, conversation, hobbies, partnership and household functions, economic advice, child rearing, and everything else under the sun. Many people today have such a long list of criteria that they can't possibly find a spouse that meets any of those criteria. Who could live up to all of those expectations? Well, me. But listen, listen to the words of Carrie English in her essay, A Bridesmaid's Lament. She's describing going to the wedding of her, the woman who was her best friend and her roommate. And this is what she writes. In the vows they wrote, the bride and groom gushed about how lucky they were to have found someone who finally loved them unconditionally. Someone who made any place home. Someone who was their best friend. And I stood there, under the flower-covered gazebo, thinking... Why not me? I was thinking, she loves me unconditionally. The house that we shared always felt like home. I thought we were best friends. Surely I can't be the only person who feels like weddings are a bit of a rejection. Two people announcing in public that they love each other more than they love you. There's no, de- no denying that weddings change friendships forever. You, you got to hear me. I, even as I read that, I've read that 10 times yeah, but, that's my first, yeah, but, marriages, you're supposed to leave and cleave, it's supposed to be all, and and I'm not trying to downgrade marriage, and a lot of my ministry is involved in premarital stuff, and, and investing in people's marriages, all right, so I'm all about marriage for married people, Um, but I don't think that marriage is supposed to bear all the burdens we place upon it, And when we stop investing in friendships because of our marriages, it not only crushes the marriage, I mean, your partner can't possibly meet all your expectations. It not only crushes that marriage, though, but it leaves our single friends, some of whom are same-sex attracted, in a state of rejection and loneliness that is not healthy and, frankly, has not been that way in most of human history. People from most of human history lived more communally than we live today had more communal meals so that you, people were just not alone eating TV dinners at night if they weren't with a romantic relationship. There was a time in the life of the church, and there still is in some places, a liturgical element for taking vows of friendship. That was, that was news to me. so I read, that's in spiritual friendship. Then I read um, some other historical stuff, you guys. It, is, it just blew my mind when I heard that. Making a commitment of loyalty in Christ to another person of the same sex in a completely non-sexual way. This rite is almost exclusively found in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, but it used to be in most worship books in the Western tradition. Consider an uh, an example, in 1834, not all that long ago, Anne Lister and Anne Walker netted the communion rail of Holy Trinity Church in York, England. They took vows of friendship. They had men in their lives romantically. They took vows of friendship before the priest at the altar. And what's interesting is I just read that this, in May, but Corey and I were at this church in 2013 when we went to York. And so I was relooking at some pictures we took of this beautiful, actually it's kind of a homely church. It's from the 1200s. And just to imagine this thing taking place at this rail. I could see in my photo where I and myself had touched uh, it made me emotional at the time. Houses were designed around the great room where friends shared time together. Philosopher Mark Vernon's work shows how Western architecture began to change as marriage enveloped friendship. Partly, he posits that Sigmund Freud's work uh, was a huge influence in our Western culture. Sigmund Freud said that every relationship is tainted by sexual attraction, that you cannot have a platonic relationship, male Male, male, female, anything. It it, it all was sexual for Sigmund Freud. And so friendships of the same sex became more suspect, and especially friendships of opposite sex. Those were just anathema. You could not do it because of what it would communicate to other people. Vernon, this philosopher, shows how homes slowly moved away from great halls for hosting friends to smaller dining rooms where only nuclear families ate together in privacy. He writes, A whole range of bodily activities, including eating, drinking, toilet, and sleeping stopped taking place inside what might broadly be called the space ex- of the extended household, and it started taking place in what became known as the marital space. Cory well, Corey and I were uh, in, in Scotland a couple years back. We would go to these, there's all these amazing castles, and so I was asking one of the tour guides, like, well, where's, like, the sleeping quarters? Oh, yeah, th- I mean, there wasn't any. Like, here in this great room, they would lay down, and some of the knights would just sleep here on this on this walkway, on these stairs. Like it, I, I'm sure when people did business, you know, they had their own little corners and stuff. But I mean, it, was just, it would just blow my mind. I don't even like going to the bathroom in a, in a new place. You know what I mean? Like everything's so private now. TMI, right? But <laughs> it, we have our own little sectioned off private places, and this is a fairly new phenomenon. Here's my point summed up by Christopher C. Brooks. We cannot imagine existing in our culture, without the haven of an erotic relationship, because our capacity to belong together in more chaste ways is so limited. You hear that? We can't really imagine life without sex, because our imagination is so stunted now of what life could possibly look like that isn't revolving around sex and marriage and nuclear family. We've lost concrete alternatives to marriage as the highest form of relating, and what I want to suggest is that the intimacy of friendship, which has taken a back burner to marriage, ought to be given more consideration. Part of the reason many marriages suffer is because of unmet expectations. Like, we just expect too much of each other. Now, I'm not saying you should ever married people, get your sexual expectations met outside of marriage. That's not even a joke. That's just not what I'm saying. But there are certain things that a friend sure could help you with that possibly your spouse is unable to. Is it realistic to think your spouse should be able to meet all your conversational needs, all your recreational needs, to be interested in all your hobbies plus your career? Isn't it possible that a good friend or two could be a healthy way of expressing intimacy in certain areas of life, not because your marriage is deficient, but because it was never designed to replace your friendships? I want to call on us to invest in deeper friendships. Consider David and Jonathan, who just read about earlier. David, an enemy of Jonathan's father, became king in Saul's place. And even after Jonathan died and David became king, He reached out to Jonathan's son, a crippled young man, and brought him into his estate. And David made him an heir of his kingdom and his estate. What a friendship. I want to call on us to be more intentional about including our non-married brothers and sisters into family life. A lot of you, I know, already do holiday meals. That's wonderful. I know many of you have regular standing dates with some non-married folks in our church, and that's, I I love that. That's awesome. Uh, I think we could do better in my house. I think all of us could do a better job at opening our tables up, opening up, um, hey, I'm going to the park. Does anyone want, just throw it out there, you know? Include people. And I want to call on all of our non-marrieds to take initiative, because this is a cultural shift for a lot of us. Talk with those who you trust. Talk about loneliness. Talk about your needs, because this isn't charity. It's relationship. People can't guess how you feel. We need to help each other out, but I think there's depth of intimacy that could happen here that is outside the realm of sexuality. Friendship, deep and intimate, can be one way to help us who are washed from sexual brokenness, to wait well for wholeness. And it's certainly something that is helping celibate gay Christians like Wesley Hill find intimacy, but I think it's actually something I could benefit from and we could all benefit from at the same time. Let me say this though, as soon as I I went on the spiel about friendship, and I think it is a powerful tool, I think it is a powerful thing, it is not the magic bullet either. Wesley Hill himself talks about great, I become really close with this guy friend and that's wonderful and now I start to sometimes become attracted to him more than a guy friend, right? He goes um, on, at the end of hanging out in an intimate friendship, he still goes home alone at the end of the day. So there is still loneliness that can take place. And this is where another celibate gay Christian writer is helpful. His name is Matt Jones, and he writes about how the church wrongly identifies the LGBT community by their sexual struggles. We don't go around saying, oh, do you know so-and-so the porn addict? Or do you know so-and-so who got a divorce? Or do you know so-and-so who committed adultery? We don't talk about other people that way. I hope you don't. You know, but well, we should, you know, even the new person who's gay. or we, we talk about people with these labels. Gay and lesbian brothers and sisters don't want to be known for their sexuality. They don't want to be singled out as if their sin or struggle uh, where their identity suggests Matt Jones. So what can we do? I think we do the same thing as we do for everybody else. We present a compelling gospel that points to Jesus and engages in mission here on earth. Eve Tushnet, a gay celibate writer, says you can't have no as a vocation. Thank you, Collins, for passing that article on to me. She says you can't have no be your vocation. If all the church says about sexuality is no, unless you're in a heterosexual marriage, that's not really a lot to live into. Like, okay, I'm gay. I want to follow Jesus. My job is to not have sex. That's it. That's the best we can do, church. No the gospel is bigger than no. Matt Jones writes, the possibility of being single my whole life, especially since I'm not particularly gifted at celibacy, started to seem for me far more viable when I began to envision a future proclaiming the gospel while fighting against injustice alongside a familial community, rather than a future fighting against Rather than a future fighting against Netflix's automated automated episode queue alone in a dark apartment. So for Matt Jones, a celibate uh, gay man, for him it's the it's the work of the gospel. It's being engaged in mission, fighting for justice, worshiping together in a real community that isn't just about Sunday. And that's where I think Leonard Street's is. Probably has a unique foot in the door. There's a lot of great churches. I think one of the things that our church does well and is growing in is trying to do community well. You know, yeah, we worship on Sunday. And then we have dinner. And we have groups that meet throughout the week. And we're trying to have picnics in the park. And we do mission projects together. And there's opportunities if people want to engage. We have a lot of room to grow. But there's ways we can engage in God's mission together, together. See? This is the same for every human being dedicated to following Jesus. What gifts has he given you? How are our unique stations in life leveraged for the glory of Jesus? How are they leveraged for the glory of Jesus? I've got three kids under the age of 10. I don't have the time, the money, or the stamina to do something that a single 27-year-old professional could do. Like, you're in the prime to be able to to spend a lot of money doing cool things, and you have a lot of time to volunteer, but I, what, what Corey and I have is connections. We know a lot of people who don't know Jesus, because we go to the park, and actually in Whatcom County, if you had a puppy, you'd, you'd be more popular, but the next coolest thing is a kid, and, and you know, so you can, you can meet people that way, and we're involved in stuff like school activities, and so we have networks, right? And then some of you are at the prime of your careers, your children are grown, Uh, maybe you have grandkids uh, on weekends or something like that, but you have maybe your highest earning power ever, you've got wisdom, you've got patience that I'm still learning about, and you have an ability to finance young people to do stuff that you don't have energy for anymore, or you have an ability to mentor that's something that your stage has. And those of you who are moving into retirement, you might not have all the extra energy anymore, you might not have a whole lot of money anymore, but you've got the gift of time and wisdom and you can invest that. See, everyone at their stage has something to offer in Christ. And what these guys are saying, these writers that, that I'm reading, um, is that for a gay and lesbian celibate person there's time, there's, there's an ability, almost an inherent ability. What Wesley Hill was saying is he gets people intuitively, like more than the average guy. He's more sensitive, and that's not just a cliche gay thing, like that he is more sensitive uh, as a person. So he knows that he can help foster relationships, that people need him. He feels needed. You need to feel needed. You have something to offer that no one else in the world does in Christ. That's the kind of community we need to be. The Apostle Paul was like that. He wasn't married. He struggled. But look at all the things he could do that are different than what I can do. We need to celebrate singleness instead of making people feel that they're incomplete until marriage. The worst offender are often churches, and it's also often people that say, Are you dating anyone when you get married? Do they have any prospects? And usually it's our young women who are the victims of those questions. Stop it. Stop it. Singleness is not a problem. It's not a problem unless the person who's single feels like it's a problem. Well, then then talk to them if they want to talk about it. But we shouldn't put these labels on people like you're incomplete until you're fulfilled in marriage. That is not for everybody. We, we could do a better job I, and i'm not saying that okay next week we're gonna have this rail up here and all the single people can come and take vows of friendship but if you want to i'm game for talking about something like that i think ways to get more serious in christ to to sanctify those relationships that's an important thing to do how do we wait well so far we've talked about leveling the field you and I, everybody's sexually broken. It's not a gay thing. It's not a singles thing. It's not a married thing. The church belongs to Jesus and we need each other. Second, we've talked about friendship as another source of intimacy that's not just for the celibate but for married folks as well. Third, we've talked about the absolutely essential to life reality that if we are not using our unique gifts in the service of Jesus and his kingdom work, We're going to be focused on our own weaknesses, whether it's sexual or whether it's greed or whether it's jealousy, insecurity, substance abuse, you name it. Because you and I are created to be about the work of God, and that's what the church needs to be about. Amen? Just to wake you up? Okay, thank you. Finally, I want to say out loud what is abundantly obvious. All of this that I'm saying about celibacy, about friendship, about... It sounds really difficult to do if you're a believer in Jesus. If you're not a believer in Jesus, it sounds ridiculous. It sounds stupid and impossible. I mean, get with it, man. The Supreme Court just legalized gay marriage for the whole nation. What are you talking about? How will people from the LGBT community come to a saving relationship with Jesus if we don't just get with the times and condone things like gay marriage? The answer is the same way that you came to faith in Jesus conversion through the power of the Holy Spirit. If you were to tell me, if I were to go to a church when I was, before I was following Jesus and sinning sexually openly, and you were to tell me, hey, come to my church you can't have sex anymore, you know, you you can't do these things, Um, that's the gospel, I'm not coming to your church, that's not what I'm about, see, I never came to Christ because of a good argument against my morals, I came to Christ because I came to a church, and I'm pretty sure the Holy Spirit led me there, Corey actually, um, said, I think we need to start going to church when we were first married, whatever, go there, And I had an experience. I can't explain it. The Holy Spirit gripped my heart. And I began to change from the inside out. It wasn't a decision. I wasn't smart enough to come to Christ. I wasn't especially good. In fact, quite the opposite in a lot of ways. But God was ready for me. And I began to change in ways I couldn't understand. Little things. Language. Being a sailor. Yeah, the F word can be used as almost any verb noun. but, but it just became distasteful, like really quickly after this conversion. I'm not saying that if you swear you're a bad person. I'm just saying that for me, it was just like this, this change in my lifestyle and the way that I saw the world. What the world needs is conversion, people, not your best arguments, Our job is not to make a vision that is attractive to someone who does not see the need for their own change. The person who is fine sleeping around before marriage will not be attracted to celibacy without the work of the Holy Spirit. And neither should we expect people who are from the LGBT LGBT community to come running, if not for the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Our job here as the church is to love Jesus and to worship him fervently, to proclaim good news of his incarnation, of his death and resurrection, and his promised return. We are to do mercy and love justice and walk humbly with our God. Our job is to keep developing deep friendships and refining our character in Christ so that our lives are good and our fellowship is healthy. But in the end, brothers and sisters, it will take a work of God. Because conversion is a process that is done by the work of God. I converted, yes, to follow Jesus, but I am being converted every day. Trying to submit more and more of my flesh to Christ. So are you. And we can have faith that the Holy Spirit continues to convert other people. Let me close this message with two examples from Wesley Hill's recent blog a few days ago. Say you're a smart, capable American liberal attending an Ivy League university. You may have had some nominal Christianity in your background, but still, by the time you're in your 20s, you're well-catechized in modern, mainstream American godlessness. Say then that you unexpectedly find yourself drawn to a midweek Eucharist at a nearby Episcopal church. You start going regularly, captivated more and more by the gospel, the story of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, and you're hearing this each week. And around the same time, you start taking the Bible more seriously because hearing it read each week in the liturgy, you want to get to know better the person of Christ of whom it speaks and of whom you're meeting in the sacrament. And the more you study, the more you realize that a, a canonical, the more you come to accept the canonical biblical theology of marriage. You start to see with the coherence between original creation of male and female and the institution of marriage. You see Jesus Christ's reaffirmation of that institution in the gospel of Mark and Matthew and the apostle Paul's insistence that this is a symbolic window onto the love of Christ for the church. And before you know it, cutting across the grain of your pagan past, you find yourself drawn in, captivated by this vision of Jesus of discipleship of him and his meaning of marriage. Such, in brief, is the experience of the theologian Ephraim Radner, as he recounted it once to me, who now writes impressively in defense of traditional biblical sexual ethics. It happened to him, and it can happen again to people in similar places. Such is an example of what conversion might look like, how it might unfold. Or say you grew up gay and happily irreligious. Say you're such a gay activist, so secure in who you are, that the cause you're championing, or and the cause you're championing, that no one would ever consider you a candidate to convert to Orthodox Christianity. But say nonetheless that in college you find yourself surrounded by a group of smart sassy Catholics, and you find to your growing dismay or amusement, that you gradually become more and more sure that the Catholic Church is right in what it teaches about sex and marriage, and that you're on your own conviction that gay sex is not is not uh, neutrally moral or morally neutral. You, You say that you become so hungry for Christ literally that you end up looking back on your conversion years later writing these words. To receive the Eucharist, I had to sign on the dotted line. They say, They make you say that I believe that the Catholic Church believes and teaches when they bring you into the fold. So I longed so intensely for the Eucharist, so I figured, hey, everybody has to sacrifice something. God doesn't promise that he'll only ask you to make sacrifices you agree with or understand. Such in brief is the experience of the lesbian Catholic writer, Eve Tushnet, one of the contributors to this blog. I end my quotes. These are two of the many stories of conversion out there from people who never dreamed and their friends never dreamed they would become disciples of Jesus. (laughs) If you would have known me before, my friends would have never dreamed it either. Some of you have similar stories. Let's make for darn sure we are a safe place to explore those that the Spirit is drawing for conversion to Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. First of all, Lord, we give you thanks that you are living and active and that you have the power to cut across all of our skepticism, our self-centeredness, our ruts of sin. And you have the ability to, to grip a heart, to turn an icy, callous heart into a heart of flesh that is soft and open. You've done it for many of us in this room. And help us to have faith that as we follow you one foot in front of the other, you'll do it for those in our lives as well. Help us, Lord, not to think that this all rests on our good arguing. Help us, Lord, from the fallacy that simply making a stand here or there is going to to change anything. Help us, Lord, to also see that that conforming to culture so that we don't scare people away is also not the way that you work. Help us then to have eyes to see and ears to hear what you're actually saying, what you're actually calling us into. Help us to be faithful to your word and to have hearts of enormous compassion. And we pray for the great privilege, Lord, of being a church That is a safe place to talk. It is a safe place to include other people, God, who are on the journey of conversion. Help us to extend the same grace that you have extended us. In Jesus' name, amen.